Luke uh, tells a story about Paul when he was in Athens, uh, and he was preaching in the marketplace, uh, preaching, he says, Jesus and the resurrection. And apparently he preached so powerfully that it sparked enough interest that he was dragged into the Areopagus before the leaders of Athens itself, who asked this question. He says, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish <clears throat> to know, therefore, what these things mean. That's a great question. <laughs> strange things you bring to our ears, strange things, things about a man, Jesus, who lived a particular life in a particular time and had a strange thing happen to him, according to Paul. And a concept called resurrection uh, that needs a whole bunch of filling in to be able to be understood. Strange things, yeah, but compelling things. They were spoken in such a way by Paul that it evoked a desire to understand them by others. That's the reality. And so they were compelled to ask him, what does this mean, and especially for me? I think one of the greatest uh, witnesses to the reality of the resurrection is, of course, the life of that first community of Christians. Compelling, uh, because that's what happened everywhere they went in the Greco-Roman world. Everywhere they went speaking about these strange things, people were compelled to ask, what does this mean? And we see that story in the Acts of the Apostles, we see that story in the epistles. It is simply a fact of history that that generation proclaimed that message in such a way that it compelled its society to ask that question. And it is a remarkable thing to see. Now, the reality is, our society is no longer asking that question. When was the last time somebody dragged you aside and compelled you to say, what is it that you are talking about here? <laughs> what does this thing mean? Because I need to hear it from you. Because I see it in you. When was the last time somebody asked you that? When was the last time somebody asked me that? It no longer is being asked in our society, and that has as much to say about the church as it does about these strange things. <laughs> and it seems to me that one of the gifts of Easter, in the season of Easter, is it gives the church, you and I right here, 
It gives us the chance to reflect on this history, this first generational impact of the strange things, with a hope that we might too rediscover their power and their meaning for our lives, so that maybe, just maybe, next Easter, we are finding people asking us that question. Right? That's what we do in Easter time. We reflect on the history of that first generation, and we do so <clears throat> through the stories they told about their encounter with the risen one. We do so through reading of their history, the Acts of the Apostles. We do so through their own writings uh, as they wrote to one another, reflecting on the meaning of these strange things, right? And we come, what is it that they understood happened that so transformed their lives and through them their world? Right? What is it that was so meaningful to them? Well, foolishly, I found myself compelled to answer that question. Um, and again, it is more of a generic thing than a specific thing with a text today, which is not my modus operandi. But I want to give it a shot. What did they say about these strange things that truly changed their lives? And here's what I would say. Here's my opening statement. Let's see if this makes any sense to you. They truly believed that God, the creator of all, has acted decisively and redemptively in and for his creation by raising Jesus, the Christ of Israel, bodily from the dead. That, I think, encapsulates not fully, but truthfully, what they truly believed had just happened in their lifetime. God, the creator of all, has acted and has acted in and for his creation, and he has acted decisively and redemptively in raising one man from the dead. That changed their lives. It changed their world. <laughs> and every component of that statement deserves a sermon, if not a book. Uh, but let me briefly comment on it. Uh, this is the tack that Paul himself took in Athens. Uh, if you go back and read Acts 17, and I would encourage you to do that, it's a great thing. The first real text of sermon preached to a Gentile and completely Gentile audience. And so here is the first foray into our world. Uh, he begins again with the creator of all having acted 
and then he says this, and this is wonderful. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people to repent. Here he is speaking to the leaders and philosophers of Athens, and he says, look, the God who made us all, you and I together, right, has overlooked our times of ignorance, you who claim to be the wisdom of the world, <laughs> because he has acted. Now he commands all people to repent, to change their life. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's their big news. God has acted, and in that action, he has set the day for judgment. The day when he, the creator of all, will right what is wrong within his creation. And if God has indeed done that, you need to know that. That's what they're saying. This is good news for you. At least it can be good news for you if you take it seriously. It has happened. He has acted. He has set the day when he will right the world, judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And how do we know that? What is this action that he has done? He says, and of this... He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's the import of the resurrection. It simply designates the one who is to judge the living and the dead. It is to demonstrate who it is that God has appointed to right what is wrong within his creation. Because he has raised this one, you now must repent. Because he has raised this one, you can now repent. The times of ignorance are over. It's glorious. And they believed it. Well, think about some of those other components as uh, we go through this statement. Uh, it is truly a raising from the dead, and indeed a bodily raising from the dead. But what Paul was saying by that and by what all of the preachers of the early church were saying is that death itself has been overcome. And by that, they did not simply mean that that moment in time when our life ends. That's not what they believed death was. They believed that death was the great and last enemy of humankind. They believed that it was one of the principalities and power that dominated our age and our world. Uh, and so Paul can say that uh, death is swallowed up in victory. That's what he writes to the church in Corinth. Death is, present tense, swallowed up in victory, his victory. 
This one who has been raised from the dead, who has death, who had no hold on this one. He is victorious over it. He has eaten it for lunch. Death is swallowed up in victory. And so he goes on to say, oh, death, where is your victory? Right? We thought you were absolutely absolute. Everybody dies. You win. <laughs> but no, not everybody dies. And you win. <laughs> death has been swallowed up. Where is your victory, Paul says? And he goes on, oh, death, where is your sting? And he says, ah, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. That's what he's saying. He says, look, in this resurrection, God has not only overthrown the principality and power of death, but he has dealt with the principality and power of sin, which is the personification of evil to Paul. He has overcome sin by which death has come into God's good creation and messed it up. And God has done so by fulfilling, not by overthrowing, the law, His Torah, His will for His good creation. He has done it in such a way that He has affirmed that. There's the victory. He has overthrown death. He has dealt with human sin, and He's fulfilled to the utmost His own law, His own will for His good creation. That is what happens when we believe in the resurrection. Those powers have been swallowed up. They no longer bind us in them. Glorious. Do we believe that? Remember again, it is a bodily resurrection. Uh, that's what the empty tomb stories are all about. Uh, the reality, of course, is, is that Jesus' body was never, ever found, was never produced even by his enemies, and it would have been helpful for them to produce the remains. Weren't able to do it. Why? Because as the angel said, he isn't here. He, in his bodily existence, is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And that has glorious implications, especially for those first disciples, but also for all of us. This decisive act of a creator is a redemption of creation, not a redemption from creation. The material world is redeemed with the risen Christ, and that's a glorious thing. We and all that we see around us are to be included in this redemption, and it begins with the one who is raised bodily. But it indeed is a bodily resurrection and not a mere resuscitation. Lazarus, for example, was resuscitated. He was raised from the dead into the same mode as living as he went into the tomb. Not so with Jesus. Jesus was not simply resuscitated, he was resurrected. And that's what all the appearance stories are about. 
He was indeed recognizable as a human being. He could eat and drink with them. That's what that cute story about Luke today was. Give me some fish. Let me eat it. I'll show you. I am a physical human being. They were also recognized, he was able to be recognized as Jesus. They, eyes had to be opened, but when they were, they saw him and recognized him. This is the same Lord that we knew. But of course, the reality is they had never known him like this. Because he was not simply raised, he was utterly transformed. He was now, in a distance, sharing in the very transcendence of God so that when they encountered them, they were drawn to worship him. My Lord and my God. It is a bodily resurrection of this one who fulfills the story of Israel. Glorious thing. They believed it powerfully. And that is good for us. It reminds us again that these things are meant for us, that we are to see him and to know him in this way. But let's come back to his appointment as judge, uh, as Paul is saying it in Acts 17, the judge of the living and the dead. Uh, these first disciples truly believe that this was not an arbitrary act of the Creator. God didn't say, look, I'm going to prove my power by choosing somebody to raise from the dead, and oh, it's you. <laughs> All right. Bingo. Done that. We can go home. <laughs> no. God raised a particular man who lived in a particular time and place, who lived a particular life and died a particular death, so that when he raised this one, who had done these things, he vindicated what he had lived. Vindicated his life, vindicated his death, and exalted him to share in the divine glory. Now listen. This is a simple fact. This one who lived this life and died this death is the only human life that has been vindicated, that has been exalted. Indeed, the church would say, this is the only human life that can be vindicated and exalted. <laughs> And we need to share that life if we are going to be part of that vindication and exaltation. See, that's why he is able to be the judge of the living and the dead, because his life has been vindicated. His life has been exalted. God has said, this is what I intended for all human life. This is what I created you to be and to do. He has done it. And I have vindicated it. I have said yes to this life and exalted it to be shared with my life. And then the wonder is this one shares that life with us through the gift of his spirit. 
so that you and I not only see his life as our template, as our pattern, but we are enabled by his spirit to actually live it out. See, that's why this resurrection is not simply a guarantee for our future. It is the promise for our present, right? It says to us, look at this life and know that this is what God vindicates and exalts, and guess what? You can live it now by being bound to this one and learning from his spirit, enabled by his spirit to live your life as he lived his. Only his human life, his pattern of human life will be vindicated. And we need to conform ourselves now to him in that vindication. That's what the Christian life is all about. It is for our present. But one more piece that is really is a truly important piece uh, that they emphasize and we need to reclaim, and not reclaim, but embrace as well. Let me put it in this way. They believed and proclaimed that God, the creator of all, did not act decisively and redemptively in and for his creation simply through this one, but as this one. That's the remarkable thing about the Gospels. They dare to say that the one who was the resurrection was the one who was first incarnated. <laughs> it's the same God. This God has shown up in the flesh in this particular man in living at this particular time and living this particular life and dying this particular That's what the prologue of John is all about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the life of man. So here is God, this word is caught up in the very being of God, and then he says, and this word became flesh and dwelt among us. The creator of all has shown up in the flesh to live this human life, to die this sacrificial death, that we might be vindicated and exalted with him into the very presence of his Father. the creator of all, in a moment of time, entered human life. He redeems us as this one, not simply through this one. That's pretty big news. That's the biggest news in the world. They believed it to their core. And I think you can see that because that's what they invited people into. All of this ramblings today for me came out of reading our epistle reading. 
and this wonderful words of John as he invites you and I to experience what he has experienced. And I just want to end by reading yet again his words. This is him speaking to you. He says, that which was from the beginning, not simply the beginning of the gospel, but the beginning of creation. <laughs> that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He says, we're talking about God here, and guess what? We were there. We listened to him. We touched him. We saw him. The one who is the creator of life came into our lives. And he goes on, he says, yeah, this life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it. That's their call. They are the ones who alone can testify to what they themselves have experienced and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He's saying, this is mind-boggling stuff. We didn't quite know it when we were first with him, but once he read us after his resurrection, it all clicked. <laughs> Here is the creator in the flesh. And we were there. He goes on. That which we have seen and heard, we now proclaim to you. We are compelled to tell you about these things, strange as they are. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us, with those who saw him and were with him and remain with him even now, with his church on earth. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus the Christ. You come into our life, and guess what? You are caught up in his life, because that's where we are. He draws us into his very self. He draws us into his new creation. He draws us into what he is about. We are drawn into his life. That's the invitation of the early church. That's why they went throughout their world proclaiming these things, testifying to these things. And he says, we are writing these things now to you because down through the ages, this is how we access these things. We write these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Our joy is to have you join us to have you come to know this one that we have come to know, to begin to live his life through his spirit, 
so that we might be vindicated with him. That is the invitation that comes with and through the proclamation. They said, this God, the creator of all, has acted. You can avoid it. You can disagree with it. It doesn't matter. He has acted. And he's acted decisively and redemptively in and for his creation, not simply through this one, but as this one. And you, through this proclamation, can know this and know him. He invites you into his presence and into his purposes through this invitation. Will you receive it? Will you respond to it? That is the meaning of the resurrection. May God give us ears to hear. May God give us wills to obey that we might know the power and the presence of the risen one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.